One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my time show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, on the Times Radio app. If politics are the boring bits is your thing, you can get that live on the radio. Loads of you have been getting in touch about what we've been talking about on the podcast over the last uh, week or so. Boyd in Alexandria. I think that's in, is that in America? He says, we were talking about driverless cars last week, or self-driving cars. He said, if it's the car's fault, who gets the ticket? Is it going to be blame the car defence for accidents? Just wondering, which is a good point, given the conversation we were having last week. And we were talking about working from home in the way it was sort of rewiring everything in Britain last week on Friday's episode. And Dave got in touch to say, really interesting podcast, having done office work pre-pandemic, fully remote for not quite two years, and now hybrid. I love hybrid, and really works for me. Certainly wouldn't choose fully office-based again, and being married to a teacher. Get how it's a luxury for jobs like mine. Lovely stuff. Well, if you want to get in touch with me about anything on the podcast, matt at times.radio. Matt at times.radio is the email address, or post a comment on the podcast reviews, wherever you're listening to your podcast. Lovely to hear from you, especially if you're still really cross about Rory Stewart. I was sickened by Matt's recent ill-informed, very nasty criticism of Rory Stewart. Perhaps it might be an idea to read Rory's books. On and on and on it goes, country garden. Someone here has a most unpleasant, inflated opinion of his own importance and abilities, and that someone is not Rory Stewart. I am through with Red Box for good now, says country gardener. And but then someone else got in touch saying, I think Matt Joy's completely right. If Rory Stewart was so dedicated to local democracy, he wouldn't have left it to take the Queen Shilling. It's the usual trolls who just jump on the bandwagon to criticise Matt. Keep up the good work, Matt, and keep debate open. I'll say it again. I like Rory Stewart. I thought he was quite good in politics. Maybe if he'd stayed in politics, he'd still be in the cabinet now, and that would probably be a good thing. But anyway, that's probably enough Rory Stewart chat. If you want to get in touch, Matt at Times.Radio. Right, coming up on today's podcast, let's look forward, let's stop looking back. Half of people still think Keir Starmer doesn't look like a Prime Minister in waiting. Only about a third of people do. It's no better, really, than when he first became Labour leader. So, we've got some helpful advice for him. Taking jaunts around the world seems to be helping him, but what about photos and fashion too? Got some just some helpful advice for Keir Starmer coming up on the podcast. But first, let's take a look at 13 years of the Tories in government. It's time for the Columbus panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, and normally on a Monday we'll be joined by Libby Rachie, but there's no Libby today, but we have got Rachie. Rachel Sylvester's here. Rachel, good to see you. Hi, Matt. And Sunday Times columnist Robert Colville's here. Hi, Robert. Hello. Uh, good to uh, have you both. Um, we should start with uh, the, the Russell Brand story, which is sort of dominating the, the news agenda, and it's started to inch into uh, politics a bit as well. Uh, Caroline Dynish, the chair of the uh, Culture, Media and Sport Committee, telling me that she's, you know, the committee may well look at the specifics of Russell Brand, but also more broadly the culture in the media. But, but Rachel, you, you've met him, you've interviewed him. Yeah, I interviewed him with Alice Thompson back in 2015. It was just before Ed Miliband went to meet him in his yeah. flat, if you remember, and did a, recorded an interview for his podcast. Um, and it was the weirdest 
a sort of creepiest, oddest interview we've ever done, I think. He was just a sort of really bizarre control freak. So he wanted to meet in this cafe in Shoreditch. But then as soon as we'd sat down and sort of got our tea, he insisted on getting up, marching around, and then sort of walked. We were sort of trailing behind him with our tape recorders trying to... Um, you know, record what he was saying. He sort of marched around all these haunts. He was wearing a kind of blanket in his sort of... He was in his guru mode just after he'd done the Messiah tour. Um, and we went to all these kind of... You know, it was a boxing club, a rehabilitation centre, cafe he'd set up for recovering addicts. And in every place, he was sort of looking for adulation and acclamation. And he talked about his addictions. Um, and it's almost as if he was... A victim of his circumstance. So he talked about how addiction is a sort of yearning for God and he'd been addicted to food to start with, to sex, to drugs. But actually, when it comes to sex, and obviously these are all allegations which yeah. he denies, but there's a, it's not just about you. There's a woman involved, in, you know, or a man, or there's somebody else. So somehow he, he was just this very odd, very narcissistic kind of mixture of a prat and something much, much darker. And he had um, all these kind of great philosophical ideas, you know, tearing up the establishment, the idea of voting is a kind of, um, you know, pointless and irrelevant. Why should we send politicians? Mm -hmm. Every time you challenged him or said, well, actually, without democracy, the danger is you end up with you know, dictatorship. Oh, don't be so unimaginative. Every time he said, well, if you don't have companies, who's going to make your iPhone? If you don't have tax, who's going to pay for the NHS? He said, you know, pernickety details. And it was a <laughs> kind... But there was a sort of undercurrent of something really quite malevolent to this kind of... which was sort of uh, manifest in this very controlling way in which he conducted the interview. Well, but it's an interesting point that um, Rachel makes about the fact that Ed Miliband, in his attempts to get elected in 2015, sat down with him after, you know, the things he'd said in public. You know, if you put to one side the, the details of the allegations, quite a lot of what he'd already said was out there, you know, in the phrase, in plain sight. It was in his book, which came out in 2007, my book you want. The stuff he said on stage about the way he treated women and the way he approached uh, sex. And yet... Ed Miliband still thought he was someone worth sitting down with in a in a general election campaign. Yeah, well, I mean, if, if, if nothing else, I mean, Miliband deserves condemnation for that simply because, as <laughs> as Rachel says, Brand's ideas were so bad. I mean, I, I had the misfortune of being asked to review his book um, Revolution, and, and of course, in which he inverted it so that because Revolution contains love. Um, if you sort of jiggle the, the stuff up. But it was, I mean, it was so, so bad. Even with Johan Hari as this um, former independent, disgraced independent columnist doing all the ghostwriting for him, it was just absolute dross. And uh, as Rachel said, it was, it was just like, it was just it was just very clearly him with Dixbone Dick, thinking, you know, oh, we should make all our own cars. They do it in Germany, doesn't it, don't they? It, it, it works fine for them. Um, and, you know, you know just, uh, and it, it was just this, a sort of symptom of that kind of, of the politician's desperation to chase the youth vote. That you've been told this is where the young people are. This is how you reach young people. So I'm going to go along and I'm going to smile awkwardly and I'm going to simper and I'm going to sort of you know hang out with the cool kids who never let me hang out with them when I was at school. 
And it's just really depressing. And actually, I think it's, it's, it's quite a sort of credit to Starmer that he doesn't really do any of that. You don't, like, you don't get sort of Starmer popping up on uh, with sort of popular TikTok influencers or any of that kind of stuff. I think it's also something about the kind of anti-politics mood that politicians are desperate to counter and sort of shows why actually it's quite dangerous. So Russell Brand was part of this, you know, I'm a comedian who's got political views, I'm a guru, now he's a wellness guru. But actually you need some kind of reason, emotion. It's part of this kind of whole anti politics but also yeah. anti-intellectual anti-experts it's all about I mean, every emotion YouTube, yeah every youtube video on russian brand's site he's not a wellness guru he's a, he's a conspiracy theorist every video of his is this is the shocking thing they're not telling you if about various different whether it's health whether it's trump whether it's covid whatever it is it's just it's just playing into that idea that yeah that that, that there are there are there are bad people in charge who are trying to control you and only i have the secret wisdom and that's why the sort of left and right meet at the back of the bike sheds, if you like. So yeah. the sort of <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn, Donald Trump, you know, there's similarities yeah. in that kind of anti-politics, anti-the mainstream uh, that's actually quite dangerous. It's interesting because I remember speaking to people around Ed Miliband about, as it was originally about the Edstone and the, the, the whereabouts of how that came about. And they all, several people said to me, the thing that they thought was go- risked blowing up that campaign in 2015 was the meeting with Russell Banks. It was very weird. He went to his house. Did he sit on his bed or did he not? I can't remember whether he refused to sit on the bed. But I think well, he, did it, he definitely did it in his kitchen. Yeah. He was trying to be sort of all down with the kids. Mm. And actually, I think the Edstone came along and because it was visually more arresting, it sort of slightly overshadowed all that. You do wonder, actually, if maybe that if the Edstone hadn't happened, there might have been a bit more interrogation of the sort of stuff that, Ed, that Russell Brand had been saying and whether or not this is what a poli- you know the sort of person a politician should be sitting down with. In a desperate attempt to try and, you know, covet votes. Yeah. And particularly young people. So there's a yeah. sort of terror, as Robert says, of um, among politicians of how do we woo the youth vote. But actually, young people are just like anyone else. They want sensible ideas, good ideas, and some sense of what you're going to do with the country. They don't want pandering to kind of yeah, yeah. faux celebrities. And also, young people can smell that a mile it's off. so fake, exactly. That you're completely right, Robert. If, if, if Keir Starmer started hanging out, you know, doing dances with TikTokers, um, the, 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 any any prospective young voter would, would smell, you know, that a mile off what he was trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the... Um, I mean, it, it is a challenge, a challenge right? Because, I mean, we, we may go on to this in a second. I, I wrote my... And I tell them about this. Like politics at the moment is quite boring. It is quite depressing, and it is quite quite grim because you know the economy is quite grim, and uh, everyone's in a in, in a bit of a, a a grim mood, and there's no money for politicians to spend. So you can't exactly promise people that everything will be wonderful and better when you know you've got uh, about top and tape need to, uh, to, to 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 scrape together. So in, in that kind of in that kind of mood, it's no wonder that people are attracted to. Um, uh, and it, you know, and this was the case back in the, the, the Miliband days. You know, it was um, you know we were still recovering from the from the crash. There really wasn't much much money to go around. Then you know the summit uplands were quite far away. So it's 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 quite tempting just to sort of you know you don't ha- if you don't have anything actually to inspire people with. It's um, you know it it it's um, it, it can be it can be quite hard. But in fact, let's let's move on and talk about your column because uh, I really enjoyed it uh, at the weekend, uh, Robert. Um, reflecting on, well, go on then. Let's play it. Robert, why have you become obsessed with a video from 1997? 
I, I've been obsessed with this video ever since I first saw it. It is, it is just amazing. It is. It starts in a in a sort of a, in, a, in an anonymous sort of London London household, and a mysterious figure um, wearing chinos is um, just pottering around the house. And his, you know, the the, the calendar and you know, his poll card comes through the, the the door, and the sun. It has to be the sun thumps down on the mat, saying, "Election day is three days away. Election day is two days away. Election day is here." And the mysterious figure walks out of the room and walks uh, walks out of the door, walks starts walking down the street. And every single person he sees, even the kind of the guy who almost runs him over, sort of stops and stares and goes, and in, in the worst acting you've ever seen, kind of goes, my God, it's you, like kind of miming, you know, this is the greatest moment of my life. You know, it's, this is like the second coming. This is Beyonce. This is Lionel Messi. I, I can't believe that you are in my street. And they, of course, they are beautifully, carefully multicultural. And there's a, there's, a, there's a woman who's buying some flowers and she takes the flowers and she, and the crowd starts to follow him down the road towards the polling station. And then you get to the polling station. He fills in the card and the camera pans up to reveal of course mr tony blair and it is and of course and things have only get, can only get better has been blasting out at full volume throughout this video and it is just the i mean so i i recently found i, I sort of mentioned it because i was recent i always thought they actually put it out as a part of political broadcast but actually it was um it was more that they would they, they had so many young voters that they thought they wouldn't know how to vote because they'd never done it before so they did this vote so, so they kind of it's actually like a training video it shows you all of the things you need to do to get to, to get to the ballot box but it just it just struck me as so so utterly distant from where we are today just that yeah. very idea that you could credibly film a video in which people's response to a politician walking down the street was not to throw things at them but but to basically sort of bow down and start worshipping. Yeah, it feels like we're a long way from that, Rachel. Well, the whole atmosphere of that Blair campaign in 97 was about hope and optimism, wasn't it? As the new dawn has broken, has it not? As Blair said on the morning after he won. And now it's not... It's a sort of traditional political divide is hope versus fear but now it's more fear versus anger actually um and there isn't much optimism and robert's right to some extent that that's partly because of the economic backdrop but i think there's also i actually think it's a mistake from labor's point of view because i think there is a sense among the electorate that there's time for a change um but people aren't quite sure whether they're ready for a change to labor and in order to inspire that sense of going for Starmer, he needs to have a bit more hope. I mean, there's really striking internal polling that Labour's done um, that shows that 79% of people think it's time for a change from the Conservatives. Only 37% think it's time for a change to Labour. Wow. So that it's in that gap yeah, yeah. is basically the hope. Um, and he need, I actually think that they have got ideas, but they're so nervous of saying them on, for example, the things I've been looking at, education and health. Yeah. They've got quite a lot of interesting things to say, but it's all kind of squashed under this great big fear of losing the reputation for economic competence. So everything has to be kind of ratcheted and hatched yeah. and, you know, um, suppressed. And I suppose if you just end up reinforcing the fear, you know, mm. everything's very gloomy, but then the, the, the argument, well, better well, to the things, devil, you know, I mean, there is a things. sense that things can only get better. You yeah. know, the, nothing's working. Although Keir Starmer said he, <laughs> he couldn't promise that. And you think, well, <laughs> uh, right, we need to move on in a sec. Uh, just to remind you, you can read loads more about the uh, Russell Brand allegations as a result of the, uh, the joint investigation by The Times, The Sunday Times, and Channel 4 uh, dispatches. Loads of that online at the Times. Uh, .co.uk or pick up a copy of the paper of course I should stress that Russell Brand denies all uh, criminal allegations against him and you can catch up with uh, some of the journalists behind the story in the Stories of Our Times podcast as well wherever you get your podcast from so we've looked at the Labour Party and things are going to get better in 1997 and all of that well let's rewind the clock now all the way back to 2010 
So I want to make a big, open and comprehensive offer to the Liberal Democrats. Now the decision has been made to leave, we need to find the best way. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Let's get Brexit done. I am a fighter and not a quitter. Some mistakes were made. Thirteen years of Conservative government. Quite a lot has happened in that time, in which the Conservative Party started to reinvent, it, reinvent itself several times to remain in power uh, since 2010. Well, Ben Riley-Smith is a Telegraph journalist and the author of The Right to Rule, a new book with new insights into how it all unfolded over the last decade. Uh, ben, I suppose, first of all, having relived it all, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing all right. Hearing all those clips just kind of brought it all back with a shudder. Uh, all the chaos. But uh, yeah, I've got over it. I'm feeling okay. Thank you. And I suppose having zoomed right in to look at the 30 years, when you zoom right out, what is your your main takeaway? I think my main takeaway was there's always a slight cliche in politics that the Tories are so much more ruthless than Labour. And I really wanted to dig in to try and see if that was true. And I think actually having stepped away, my conclusion is... It is really true. There is something about this party. A lot of people I talked to said, you've got to understand, we are not an ideological party. We're a power party. Labour was set up with a demographic in mind, working class, and an ideological vision in mind, democratic socialism. Tories are much less anchored in either of those points. And if you look across the 13 years, their ability to shapeshift, to change what they mean, what they stand for, what electorate they're going after, is kind of remarkable. I mean, it works brilliantly successfully at points. So that way, I mean, imagine when that night, that morning after Brexit, the government had been telling the country, do not leave the European Union. They pivoted on a dime, got a new leader, and then started telling the country, we have to deliver Brexit. And seven years on, that party is still in power with an unbroken run um, of Tory rule. So there is something politically impressive about the way they've done that. I suppose the wider question is whether... To what end? Whether <laughs> but, you don't get um, these arcs Ben, I think what some Tory MPs that I've spoken to would say is from the sort of moderate wing is that actually Brexit was the poison that entered the soul of the Conservative Party and that that was when they did become ideological and they lost the sense of reason uh, and that's in a way when they lost their way um, and that they have always been a pragmatic party interested in power and that Brexit meant they then became an ideological party, you know, determined to pursue that end rather than the sort of uh, pursuit of power. And then since then, you've had this sort of succession of utterly chaotic uh, prime ministers. What, do you, does that chime at all with um, what you heard or, or who you spoke to? Yes, definitely. I think there is a before and after moment in this entire period. And there's this kind of huge explosion in the middle which is brexit i mean i talked to quite a few people at the end of the book trying to compare you know this 13 years to the new labor 13 years to the thatcher and major 18 years and you don't get the same kind of arcs of reform running through this one as the last two and just the most obvious reason is brexit happens and it whether you like it or loathe it it's it takes a huge amount of focus and political energy in whitehall in westminster um, so then suddenly the, those arcs get scrambled. And then you do have this kind of jumping about. So, you know, Boris Johnson, big spending, 
big taxation ultimately. Liz Trust comes in with this kind of purist uh, cut tax, cut red tape vision. And then within seven weeks later, Rishi Sunak is projecting the opposite. Debt is the embodiment of all evil and we need to control the public finances to bring it all down. So yes, I do think the, the moment was Brexit that caused all of those scrambles. But even so, you know, the, the flexibility David Cameron showed when he came up short in 2010 and managed to do a deal to get across the line, the ruthlessness with which they turned on their Lib Dem coalition partners in 2015 and wiped them out practically to get that big Tory majority. I mean, there is something about this party focusing so much on power and how to retain it. Um, Robert Colville, one of the things that always struck me with the Conservative Party in Brexit is the problem with Brexit is it's so sort of off-brand for the Conservatives, which is sort of conserve things, my, you know, minor tweaks here and there, steady the ship, you know, preserve the major institutions and work within them. And, and blowing everything up with Brexit is so off-brand. And actually, part of the problem they now have, is, as Ben was setting out, is that having adopted almost every possible position on everything, maybe this is slightly what happens when you've been in government for a long time, it makes it very difficult then to criticise your opponents because essentially nothing that Keir Starmer can come up with now hasn't at some point been suggested by one of the five prime ministers of the last 13 years. Yeah, so I think that's slightly unfair. I think there's always been, especially since the Thatcher days, there's always been a tension between a conservative radicalism and conservative sort of establishmentarianism, if you like, the, the wets and the dries. And, like, you know, Brexit was effectively, the, the actual Brexit campaign was in many ways a Tory civil war. Like, the people on who were leading both sides of that campaign were were, were conservatives. And, and the, the same with, with Rishi versus Liz. I, I made this point in, in, in a couple of columns that effectively the... Um, you know, the, I mean, tr- Truss's vision of, um, of economics is impeccably conservative. You know, you cut taxes, um, grow, you, you know, growth will follow. That's the most important thing. Rishi Sunak's vision of economics is also impeccably conservative, which is that you, you know, you keep, uh, you, you have to watch the pennies and you can't um, can't spend money you don't have. Like, this is exactly the argument that Thatcher and Reagan were basically having in the 80s. Reagan was, you know, the, the, the US version is, you know, de- the deficit's big enough to take care of itself. Thatcher was, you know, you have to treat the nation's finances like your like your own personal finances. So, so all of these strains are... Are, are, are in there and uh, there's always been a kind of working out and especially in this parliament um, since 2019 when all you know what's happened everything have made it so much easier for MPs to form research groups about pretty much an, an, yeah. you know, anything that, that a few of them are interested in suddenly there's a pressure group and a campaign group on it. But going back to Ben's point isn't Liz Truss's speech today the triumph of ideology over pragmatism and power because you know she crashed the economy uh, the financial markets went bonkers. Uh, the pound is still, you know, went into free fall. People are still paying higher mortgage rates as a result. But she's blaming the London dinner party circuit as if these are kind of international financial markets, a part of some anti-growth coalition. So, I mean, I'm really interested in Ben's take on that. And yeah, ben, her... she, but it's interesting, Ben, she, as well as crashing the economy, she also crashed the politics. Mm. It was a very unconservative way of going about the politics. I mean, that is the tipping point. Yeah. That is the Black Wednesday moment, potentially, isn't it? Well, one of the ironies of her speech, exactly, is, you know, the tradition, one of the values that Tories traditionally stand by is free markets, and ultimately it was free markets uh, making their own decision on her and Kwasi's economic policies that cause all the tremors that yeah, yeah. led us to go so quickly. But I'd say the other, the, the other takeout, which is a more personal one, uh, going back to your first question, Matt, is just how many of these people bitterly loathe each other. I mean, I was lucky <laughs> enough to get uh, 120 plus of the kind of key figures and I mean, there's a slight veneer of, oh, let's all come together to win the election. Because I think whatever camp you're in, you accept changing the leader now would give you a worse chance of um, 
winning the next election because of last year's chaos. But I mean, the Boris and Trust people genuinely vehemently have a frustration with the Rishi Sunak camp and they feel that uh, the premierships of both of those people were cut short partly by his allies and the way they acted. And ditto Rishi Sunak's yeah. um, allies kind of look, look, look across with scorn at um, the others. So chip away at the surface and there's definitely just this huge divide still in the party. Robert Colville from the Sunday Times, Rachel Sylvester from the Times. You know you can read them. Just get yourself a subscription every week. And Ben Riley-Smith, whose new book, The Right to Rule, is out now. Right, coming up, some top tips for Keir Stummer on how to look like a PM in waiting. That's next on the Redbox Podcast. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Does Keir Starmer look like uh, the UK's next Prime Minister? Is he striking the sort of pose which is going to get him into number 10? Now, yes, Labour have got a 20-point lead over the Tories. But Keir Starmer's polling actually isn't that good. In fact, uh, he is outpolled by the Labour Party. People are more uh, positive about the Labour Party than they are about him. And on the question of does he look like a Prime Minister in waiting, 48% of people say no. Only 31% of people say yes, which is worse than when he first became Labour leader. The figures have been coming down uh, since uh, all of that kerfuffle last year. So what we thought we'd do is take a look at what it takes to become Prime Minister in waiting. His PR, PR team have been trying to rectify uh, some of these concerns with quite the global tour. Last week, Keir Starmer was in The Hague talking about his plan to smash the gangs and stop migrant channel crossings at Europol's headquarters. He spent the weekend at a conference for centre-left leaders in Montreal, which included big wigging with Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the former New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. And then tomorrow, he's off to Paris to meet the French President Emmanuel Macron. Well, let's head to Paris now, where the Times is. Charles Bonner can barely contain his excitement. Morning, Charles. Morning, Matt. Uh, How will Keir Starmer be greeted by Emmanuel Macron? He'll be greeted as a colleague, as a potential future leader, uh, even a likely future leader in the view of the French. I should point out this is not a breach, a break with protocol, as some of UK media tried to explain last week. Macron does meet senior opposition leaders if they're within reach of power. For instance, he he met Olaf Scholz, the the German leader, before he was elected. And and are they political friends? Because uh, I think sometimes people in the UK might misjudge where Emmanuel Macron is on the the political spectrum. (laughs) Well, Macron, as the French say, he has it both ways all the time. He came out of the left, out of the equivalent to the, uh, the, French, the British Labour Party, in that he was in the administration of François Hollande, although he'd never, of course, been elected to anything until he was elected president in 2017. But he moved towards the centre and he created this party, which is really a personal vehicle for him, which is both left and right, uh, en même temps, as he says, at the same time. It's centre left, centre right. So a part of his government is very close to the British Labour Party, or the more reasonable side of the British Labour Party, and part is closer to the Conservatives. So it's a hybrid. And uh, I suppose I know the answer to this. Do people do the outside the political bubble? But do people in France know who Keir Starmer is? No, but then they probably don't know who the opposition leader 
leaders are in most other European countries either. Uh, they, they people know that the British Labour, the British Socialist Party is called Travailliste, Labour Party, and then they remember Tony Blair, and that's about it. I mean, do, do people in France even keep up with who the Prime Minister is, given that there's been a bit of a turnover? <laughs> That can be quite difficult. They certainly know Boris Johnson. Uh, I think a lot of French people think he's still prime minister. Well, as does he, I think. Um, <laughs> and when Keir Starmer says, uh, as he has done uh, in an interview with the FT today, that he wants to pursue a closer relationship with the EU, not not about joining the single market and the customs union, but reopening mm. some of the Brexit uh, agreements, is that the sort of thing which will go down well in France? Or yes. actually yeah. was Emmanuel Macron quite glad to see the back of Britain? No, he's not glad to see the back of Britain. Now, Macron is realistic. Uh, the British-French relationship is, is central to Europe, whether or not Britain is in the in the EU. And the, the, the relationship is very heavily based on defence, amongst other things. They're the only two nuclear powers and the only two countries in Europe with seats on the United Nations Security Council. So uh, Macron, President Macron, likes to keep Britain as his partner in Europe. But of course, he is pleased that uh, Keir Starmer might be developing what the French would call a more reasonable view of the European Union, of the relationship with the European Union. But uh, Macron will make it very clear that Britain will get no no gifts, no cadeau, as the French say, at all, because uh, the UK was always the, the, the awkward squad in the EU, and France is never going to let it have its special privileges again. And on the question of illegal migration... Um, it's clearly, it clearly remains, you know, a hot political issue in, in the UK. And, and Rishi Sunak's promised to stop the boats. Uh, Keir Starmer said that actually the, the way to do that is to smash the gangs and greater European cooperation. Although he denies that means having a what they call it was a burden sharing deal, which would mean that the other migrants would come from elsewhere in the EU, EU to Britain. How has this been seen in France and the and the? The, the idea that, that France is there to help the UK solve what is essentially a UK problem. Yeah, it's, as you suggest, that this is seen as a UK problem. It's very marginal in France for obvious reasons. It doesn't affect France much. In fact, um, a lot of French people, not talking officially, of course, would say that France is quite pleased to see migrants leave French soil as opposed to arriving in French on French soil. But um, Macron has... has is making an effort with the UK and is accepting UK money to police the, the shores. But uh, as I say, the, the, Britain is expected to change its own conditions first before France will really do much more. And is, there a, is it a political issue, just in terms of the number of people entering essentially through the south of France? Is there more political concern about people arriving rather than the ones who might be leaving for the UK? Yes, very much so. It's a hot potato at the moment. Uh, in fact, the interior minister has gone off to Italy today. Macron sent him off short notice to deal with the latest flow of migrants coming into Italy, try to mend fences with Italy. France and Italy have been loggerheads because France, in Italy's view, is not taking enough of the illegals who are coming in, into Lampedusa and the south of Italy. A lot of them are coming over the Alps illegally, and France is upset over that and is uh, 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 squabbling with Italy over the over, um, immigration. Yeah. Well, plenty for Keir Starmer to discuss with Emmanuel Macron uh, tomorrow. Uh, Charles Bowman, good to speak to you. Charles Bowman, though, our man in Paris. Well, as good as it is to get in with Macron, Keir Starmer is still waiting on his big invite to meet Joe Biden, though he claims to have had a good relationship with Barack Obama. Apparently, he's spoken to him several times. Well, meeting the US president is the holy grail for aspiring prime ministers. Tony Blair met with President Clinton back in 1996. Now, that is not a diplomatic question. <laughs> 
<laughs> if I were in his position, that's a question. <laughs> Look, it's all I can do to keep up with American politics. And I, I only hope he's talking to the next American president. <laughs> <laughs> Will you be sharing ideas? Yes, I'm looking forward to discussing a number of things, including, uh, obviously, the, uh, the Irish peace process and the process in Northern Ireland, which is very important to, uh, to the United States. And I, uh, I want to compliment uh, Mr. Blair and his party. I think that the way they have proceeded in this has been very statesmanlike. That was uh, Tony Blair and President Clinton in 1996. It was a big moment as well when David Cameron had some time for some small talk with Barack Obama at a meeting in 2008. So I should be on the beach. Should be on the beach in two weeks. I believe in proper holidays. <laughs> we need a break. But you need to, you've got to keep your head together. You've got, you've got to refresh. Do you get a break? Did you, did you have a break at all? I have not. I'm going to take a week in August. Just chatting about the holidays. It was reported at the time Obama was unimpressed with Cameron, though. Although they did go on to enjoy something of a bromance when David Cameron got to number 10 in uh, 2010. Not that getting FaceTime with the president is always easy. Ed Miliband was offered a, a short brush by with Barack Obama. It's not even a proper meeting. It's basically a meeting with someone else and Obama popped in back in 2014. We had a good and wide-ranging discussion about a range of issues, including the situation with the Malaysian airliner and our approach towards Russia. Uh, we talked about the situation in Gaza. Uh, we talked about Britain's uh, engagement uh, in Europe. So it was a wide-ranging uh, and good conversation about many of the issues that the world is facing. Across the UK, on DAB, online and on your smart speaker, Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Well, good morning, it's Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Taking a look at Keir Starmer's image. Polling shows 48% of people think he doesn't look like a Prime Minister in waiting. Only 31% of people think he does. Far fewer, actually, than the proportion of people who say they're going to vote for him. Well, Labour spin doctors are giving Keir Starmer's image a lot of thought. Uh, they've put him front and centre of, ne of next month's party conference brochure with a huge full-page brooding picture of his face looking fiercely into the distance on the front cover. Suggests his party do think he's an asset and his image is one that can not only unite the party but boost Labour's, uh, Labour's electoral prospects. However, during several sessions of our monthly Times Radio focus group, suggests not everyone shares that opinion. I don't know if it's just he's got one of those faces I don't really trust, yeah. but I just ha have him like as if he's a yes man. There's just something about him that I just don't like and I can't put my finger on what it is. He has got one of those faces that, you know, you know, it's not quite warming. So, maybe it can be recorrected uh, corrected with a prime ministerial photo op. Stefan Russo is the chief political photographer for the Press Association. Well, certainly, uh, I mean, not a lectern. I mean... If you remember the um, general election campaign of 2015, where I think Ed Miliband took his lectern absolutely everywhere, and I photographed him behind it in people's back gardens. Um, oh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> uh, so they, they certainly thought a lectern was the way forward and to look prime ministerial. From a photographer's point of view, you know, it's awful having a lectern in the way, but it made for some interesting pictures. But I think... Um, I think Keir Starmer is doing the right thing, you know, especially this weekend. We've seen him in Canada. He's going to France today. You know, if you're seen, and I've mentioned this to them as well, if you're seen on that world stage with other world leaders, you know, you've got to, you've got to look like you're, you're ready for office. And the prime minister of the day always has that advantage. He gets to stand on the doorstep of number 10. 
and be photographed shaking hands with prime ministers, presidents, and even kings and queens sometimes. So that's always going to be the advantage of the person who's in power. So, you know, when you're coming from behind as leader of the opposition, you've got to be up there. You've got to, people have got to see you and think, yeah, I can imagine him as prime minister. So I think certainly going to be photographed overseas with other leaders is certainly a good move. And, um, um, you know, it's something I would suggest, yeah. One of the things I was thinking about as well, aside from Ed Miliband taking his lecture to somebody's back garden, which was uh, um, uh, something I'd forgotten, uh, but David Cameron, before he became uh, Prime Minister, in the run-up to, to 2010, Tony Blair and then Gordon Brown used to do these monthly press conferences in Downing Street, and then David Cameron used to do them, it, actually just not very far at all from, from Downing Street, in the most Downing Street building they could find. I think it was a private members club is it st stephen's club um well, but it, yeah. that used to look you know there's a big picture of church on the wall and there was a lectern yeah. in the you know the sash windows and all of that but you, creating the impression that they he was almost interchangeable with whoever it was who was in dynasty yes exactly i remember those press conferences in the st stephen's club in st james's wasn't it yeah yeah no absolutely you've got to um you know, look at the part, obviously. And if you remember, I remember photographing David Cameron back in, I think, 2005 when he ran for uh, leader. I mean, he really came from nowhere. Nobody had really heard of him. But he did a very good job, at, you know, in five years, looking very prime ministerial. He did a lot of foreign trips. I remember we went to India. He went to America. He went to, uh, he went to Africa. And he did that right from the beginning because I think he saw that. So... Um, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I can remember as far back as when Tony Blair became leader of the Labour Party and he was the opposition leader. And I remember photographing him when he first went into Parliament as leader of the Labour Party. And I was thinking, he's never going to be Prime Minister. He just doesn't look the part. Because obviously we had John Major as Prime Minister. And whatever you think about him, he kind of looked the part. He'd been Chancellor. And I couldn't imagine Tony Blair as Prime Minister. But you grow into the role, you know. And the more you're seen out there, the more you're seen in the papers and on TV doing what prime ministers do, then you're more electable, I think. And when you go on an election campaign, I've been out in campaigns with leaders of the opposition where pe people have come up to me and, said, and asked me, who is that? You know, it's happened with Ed Miliband. And if you're, if you're on a campaign and people don't even know who you are, you, you know, you've got a big problem. Take me through some of the worst photo ops then that you've, you've <laughs> covered over the years. <laughs> well, I mean, we've spoken about them before. Um, you know, the, the, the Ed Stone that Ed Miliband uh, uh, rolled out during the election campaign of 2015. I think that's probably the best example because, the, you know, the whole point of the, the Ed Stone was they were going to put that in the Garden of Downing Street when they got there. You know, so it was, it was, it was already quite presumptuous. And that's what they were going to plant in the garden. So they'd have to keep to these pledges. And that backfired massively and uh, became a bit of a running joke to the point at which people were desperately trying to find out where it was being broken up. But I think on the whole... Uh, you know, from my point of view, the trouble from my point of view is opposition leaders are always very cautious. You know, they don't want to take any risks. You know, and I can understand with Keir Starmer that, you know, they were quite well ahead in the polls. They don't want to risk anything because, you know, it's 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 theirs to lose at the moment. So so they're, they're not going to do anything to, um, I guess, if you're coming from behind, then that's when you sort of throw caution to the wind. That's and when you that's when you uh, go on a log phone wearing a baseball cap like William Hague or something. Thinking, well, <laughs> well, well, quite. I mean, could, imagine what, what harm he could it do? Time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you are drinking, you know, coconut milk out of a, a, a pineapple <laughs> and not in a carnival, you remember? 
<laughs> yeah, because just think about anything, anything might turn these things around. And yeah. um, uh, just finally, Stefan, in terms of the the operation around party leaders, it, it sort of feeds into that a bit of the not taking risks. It's always a sign that, you know, an operation has got their, their stuff together when, you know, you don't get a party leader standing under... Uh, an exit sign when, you know, someone spots that someone's taking photos of you eating a bacon sandwich. Yeah, yeah, it really tightens up, especially when you go towards an election camera. When I find when leaders get into office as, as leader of the Labour Party or the, or the Lib Dems or whoever, they're always very relaxed. They're always sort of desperate to get you to their photo ops, but it gets, it, it gets harder, it gets more restrictive as we get towards a campaign because obviously they don't want any mess-ups, they don't want any anything to go wrong. So it does make my do- my job more difficult. And I always say to, you know, politicians, just be yourself, just be relaxed, just go for it. Don't, you know, if you, if you, if you shy away from a photo op, you can see it in the pictures. People look awkward. But, you know, it has to be said that Boris Johnson was a person who didn't shy. He would throw himself into it and he got away with it, you know. So I always give him as an example, but he's not a great example because he was a bit of a one-off. Stefan Busso, Chief Political Photographer for the Press Association. And about a lot in the coming days of party conferences and so on as well. So from the image to the voice, there's the question of sounding like a Prime Minister. Here's what the Dead Ringers impressionist Lewis MacLeod told me about the sound of Keir Starmer's voice. Starmer, I don't know what I was watching. It was a sci-fi programme and there's a little droid in Star Wars that scuttles across the floor. It makes this noise. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how I got into Starmer, was a droid from Star Wars, bizarrely. But, you know, hello. I guess it's the hello. Hello. Are these, you know, slightly nasal? Lewis McLeod there. Well, Margaret Thatcher famously altered her voice in order to sound more like a Prime Minister with a little help. Laurence Olivier, uh, after he met her spin doctor on a train, he offered up Kate Fleming, who was the voice coach in the National Theatre, which she was running. And for several years, she worked with Margaret Thatcher to, to lower her voice. Her biographer, Charles Moore, says it was an important part of her journey to number 10. All these things are somewhat marginal, but they do add up. And there often are things that are quite easy to change, which make a poor impression on the public until they have changed. And you see that with all politicians in, uh, nowadays, in particular, as people are more and more visual. You know, don't wear a suit that sort of clashes with the camera. It, it, they have very clear lines, don't they? A modern politician's suit and block colours and all that sort of thing, rather than the more sort of fussy appearance that people used to have. And indeed, Mrs. Thatcher's appearance became less fussy, so she got rid of her bows and things like that. And with the voice... Her voice was too high. I've done a good deal of other speaking, but speaking in the House of Commons is quite different. It's a unique experience. It was perhaps partly because people were prejudiced against a woman's voice. But actually, if you listen to it in the 60s, it was too high. It, it, that somehow interfered with its audibility and its communicative power. And if she could get a bit more depth into it without pretending to be a man, you know, sort of, a, it sounded somewhat artificial, perhaps, and some people didn't like that, but it somehow also gave her more... Gravitas. To those waiting with bated breath for that favourite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies, not for turning. <laughs> and um, I also think it gave her more staying power. You get very tired making public speeches. And I think when it's coming more out of your stomach and less at the sort of top of your throat, that helps. And she became in certain respects, a very, very effective speaker. She wasn't perhaps a natural orator in some ways, but she, the ability to 
whack the message home was pretty pretty amazing. Charles Moore there, uh, Margaret Thatcher's biographer. In fact, there's more on uh, uh, the meeting on the train between Lawrence Olivier and Gordon Rees in a forthcoming book, Planes, Trains and Toilet Doors, 50 Places to Change British Politics. You can look it up. Uh, Finally then, uh, we've done the face, we've done the voice. You, What about the fashion? You have to dress like a Prime Minister too, or as David Cameron would say... Put on a proper suit, do up your tie and sing the national anthem. David Cameron there, giving Jeremy Corbyn some fashion advice. Well, the Times is fashion editor, Harriet Walker, explains how she would rate Keir Starmer's suits. Well, I think so far they've been a little bit like his policy announcements. I would say they are carefully tailored and deliberately bland. Um, I don't think he's, (laughs) I think he's being very careful about what he puts out there. But I also think, and this is quite rare in the way politicians dress, that he's being quite authentic and that is a very social media word, but we, we've become slightly obsessed with authenticity because it's so obvious, I think, when politicians are dressing the way they think we want them to look rather than the things that they would naturally put on. And so, I mean, I suppose the bottom line is, if you want to present yourself as a Prime Minister in waiting, dressing like one is a really obvious way to do that. And if you're a leader of the Labour Party, wearing a suit with a red tie is sort of <laughs> route one. Uh, you know, that is the most obvious thing to do. How are his suits? I mean, I can never really... People who know about these suits can always spot if you're wearing a good suit or not, or an off-the-peg one or a tailored one. How, how are his suits and how do they compare to, like, Rishi Sunak's? Do you know what? I think we've all got slightly less snotty in the fashion world about and generally about suits and about tailoring because you can get really good suits on the high street the the issue is whether they fit or not you know and when you talk about looking prime ministerial i think it's important to note that the last prime minister but one looked like he had slept in his clothes and people still voted for for him um i imagine boris johnson's suits were very expensive but they still looked terrible because they didn't really fit and they were creased whereas keir starmer's are probably less expensive i've got my I've got my hunch that they're probably from somewhere sort of upper high street, but probably um, off the peg rather than made to measure. But they fit him. So he looks smart. And the, the risk really for a politician is if they start not wearing a suit. If they, mm-hmm. you know, David Cameron made a big thing about taking his tie off and that was only been talked about for about a year in what, like 2005, <laughs> 2006. Um, mm-hmm. You know, then he wore some trainers, which I seem to remember were made from old fireman's hoses or something and that was all anyone talked about. <laughs> a good memory. They're all quite high, I don't know why I've got, yeah, I'm a bit weirdly obsessed with the things that David Cameron wore, but they're all quite high risk. Once you start putting on a t-shirt, that yeah. could sort of completely derail your media plans for a fortnight. Totally. It is, you're in very, very dangerous territory, but I think what the, the key thing is back to this kind of sense of authenticity, because people can tell immediately if you're wearing a T-shirt and you never usually wear a T-shirt. We just seem to instinctively know when politicians are wearing things that they are not at ease in. It is so obvious. And actually, speaking of David Cameron, I had to write a story once because he had gone to the beach wearing a pair of sort of slip-on leather black corporate loafers. And it was just the weirdest thing ever. (laughs) I presume it's because he didn't want to be photoed in flip-flops, but actually, what's worse, you know? Um, So Keir Starmer has gone down a more casual route recently. At least we've seen him being casual. But I haven't been offended by that because I don't feel like he's doing it for show. And I think we kind of know enough about... He's a football dad. He spends his weekends when he can on the football terraces. And that's why he's wearing his Stone Island polo shirt um, and his Adidas Sambas. And that 
kind of makes sense to me. So I don't I don't think he looks unprime ministerial. I just think he looks normal. Do you think it makes a difference that he's a bit older? He's 61. He's mm. a man who knows, <laughs> you know, which bit of MS. Is <laughs> is the one he makes a beeline for, whereas you know he's almost twenty years older than Rishi Sunak, and Rishi Sunak is still you know he's, probably something I've got to come with him. Still, possibly wants to dabble a little bit in being fashionable, and that's how he ends up wearing really expensive sliders, or you know, and he's also got a lot of money, and then people focus on his yeah, brown Prada I shoes think, or whatever. I think again, it comes down to this idea of authenticity because. Rishi Sunak is on another planet when it comes to what he spends his money on clothes-wise. So the reason he ended up on a building site in a pair of £500 suede loafers is because those Prada loafers to him are probably like a pair of M&S loafers to us. You know, they're just something you put on because they're... This is old shoes. There is old play shoes, and that's what yeah, they're Yeah, you know, like slippers or whatever. <laughs> but, and that, but that, that's his sort of version of authenticity, and that's why it comes across as... That's why it's no... He's, he's at ease in things like those, but he wears them to situations that people like us, the norms, never would. And I think that's why we all noticed why when he was wearing those Timberland boots, which caused the brilliant internet meme of stop the boots rather than stop the boats. Um, because they they're about five sizes too big and they were so clearly something that he would never have bought. Just finally then, it strikes me that the suit and the tie is hmm. politicians are about the only, politicians and newsreaders are about the only people who still wear them. Is the suit hmm. dead beyond sort of Westminster and weddings? Oh no, definitely not. I just think it's the way that, that we, men and women, um, wear them now. I think um, you do see it's, it's a Silicon Valley sort of cliche, but I think suits with trainers make so much more sense than they used to, and not just for the commute. I think um, I think the tie is probably dead, apart from very formal occasions, and I think we're seeing that with politicians like Keir Starmer anyway, who are sort of jettisoning them for much of the the sort of um, glad handing and, and networking that they do. I, I, coming back to that kind of the idea of like dress down politicians. I think someone who did that really well without losing, uh, you know, still looking sharp, but without kind of looking inauthentic was Obama. I just think he did that um, suit, but rolled sleeves look very well. And I think he just always looked at ease in his clothes. I think that's, that is the, the most that every politician can hope for, I think. Harriet Walker, the Times is fashion editor. Loads of you get, getting in touch about this. D says, why are you so obsessed with what Keir Starmer looks like? Surely what he says and does is more important. Sunak wears designer suits. Badly, it must be said. But they say nothing about his competence or lack thereof, just his bank balance. And Catherine says, Mac, ignore the whingers. I love this stuff. More focus groups, please. More thoughtful insight into what's behind the politics. If it's helpful, I've got socialist tendencies. But I wouldn't let Keir Starmer kiss my baby, if that's still a thing that politicians do. I don't like the cut of his jib. And as we've heard on those uh, focus group clips, uh, the cut of his jib matters in politics because it will influence what people think of them and whether their willingness to uh, vote for them. Well, plenty of food for thought for Keir Starmer. Maybe you can listen, listen back to that on the Red Box podcast as he heads to France to meet Emmanuel Macron. Now, that's all we've got time for today's episode of the podcast. If you've got any advice for Keir Starmer, email me, matt at times.radio. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. <laughs> 